This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Ksenia Chizhova, Assistant Professor of East Asian Studies at Princeton University, and she'll be talking about her new book, Kinship Novels of Early Modern Korea, Between Genealogical Time and the Domestic Everyday, which was published in 2021 by Columbia University Press. The kind of Korean culture that reaches global audiences today is often explosively innovative, from genre-bending music to socially astute novels and film. Much of this recent creative wave rests, however, on a long-standing legacy of arguably more measured and regulated cultural output, including literary works written during Korea's last dynastic period, the Choson. Xenia Trezhova's new book explores one particularly intriguing strand of late Choson literary production, namely lineage novels, or Kanmon Sothol. On one hand, these texts have characteristics which would be unsurprising to anyone with a passing knowledge of this period in Korean history, reflecting as they do the importance of Confucian notions of patriarchy and heredity, which coalesced into a powerful national ideology on the peninsula from late in the 17th century. But Trezhova takes us deeper into both the form and the content of these works, showing how close attention to things like the materiality of manuscripts and calligraphy and the complex expressions of both regulated and unregulated emotion shed light on more textured aspects of Korean high society and culture. From gender relations and the interplay of vernacular versus elite culture, to the overlapping temporalities of timeless lineages and daily rhythms of mundane domestic life, we get a powerful sense here of a world rich in nuance and complexity. This ultimately was also a world, both literary and literal, which came crashing down on collision with the historical tides which have swept over Korea over the past century and a half. But the lens this book provides into this overlooked aspect of early modern culture nevertheless offers us plenty to reflect on when considering cultural production in Korea over the longer durée. And so it's with great pleasure that I'll say to Ksenia Trezhova, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ed, for having me here. And thank you for a really beautiful introduction of my book. Well, it's hopefully only the beginning of a you know, more generally interesting conversation about it as a whole. Um, but before we jump into the actual uh, content itself, how about uh, I ask you uh, some of your own background and what it was that kind of got you interested in these topics? 
Uh, right. So actually, I first encountered uh, lineage novels upon the advice of my advisor uh, in graduate school, Professor Jahyun Kim Habush. And she just said, Ksenia, why don't you have a look at this text? It's very interesting. Uh, and the first text I was actually reading was The Pledge at the Banquet of Moon Gazing Pavilion. Uh, it's a scarily long novel in 12 volumes in modern print. Uh, and what I saw there was a very unusual woman, Madame So, who was beautiful, smart and accomplished uh, and who found herself in a really difficult position of being a second wife to a husband who already had an heir a son from the previous marriage. Uh, and then I was basically seeing how this woman was going through brutal conflicts of feelings, uh, which she was acting out uh, in really violent acts against people around her. And this image of unruly woman uh, was really something I wasn't prepared to expect from the society of Joseon Dynasty Korea, uh, with very rigid ideals of obedient femininity. Uh, so actually my work henceforward was really an attempt to understand how can we read this text? Where do these women come from? And why would the lead women be allowed and even encouraged to read about heroines like Madame So? Mm, well, that's great. I think that's quite a familiar sounding experience of uh, a kind of familiarity with a broad topic and a kind of general theme several years into research perhaps, but suddenly encountering something new and surprising that can lead you off down a, a new avenue. Um, but what was your sort of trajectory up to then with uh, studying Korean culture and, and literature and so on? How did you sort of first get into studying uh, Korean uh, topics at all? That was a truly roundabout way. Uh, I actually started uh, my work in Russia uh, and my uh, it didn't finish, uh, but uh, I began with actually historical linguistics and church Slavonic. Um, after that, I did my BA in English, uh, but then I actually was always interested in East Asia for a reason that I completely forgot. Uh, and when my students kept asking me, uh, so why are you doing Korea? I remembered that actually when I was an elementary student in Russia, we had a very adventurous teacher uh, in my third grade literature class. Uh, so she gave us tongue poetry in translation in Russian. Uh, and from then uh, on, I kind of remember that feeling of strangeness of reading this text in Russian uh, and actually feeling that the aesthetics, even the language, is so radically different from what I was used to. So that was the beginning of my interest in East Asia. Uh, and then Korea actually came very arbitrarily. I signed up for uh, Japanese, Chinese uh, and Korean courses and I could take Korean first. Korean language. Uh, and then kind of after that, uh, it just uh, was, um, you know, accidental, I would say. I see. So did that involve some period of study in, in Korea as well during that kind of, was that during bachelor's study at uh, that time? Uh, so actually, uh, I did a year of language in Korea, um, Korean language, and then simultaneously, I was also taking classes in literary Chinese. Uh, so then it kind of uh, anchored me to the pre-modern period, uh, although I ended up working on the vernacular Korean archive. Mm, great. Well, yeah, and actually those kind of parallel themes of this uh, established, very kind of high literary, uh, I guess, yeah, Sinitic or China-connected cultural form and, and the, the, yeah, the parallel existence of that with this more vernacular um, uh, output is, you know, it emerges a lot in this, this book, which is a really interesting aspect of it. Um, so the book itself, I think you've already kind of mentioned it sort of emerged uh, and the themes emerged during your doctoral study. Um, so was that a sort of uh, smooth process from then to work on this topic during your PhD and then ultimately produce this book? 
No, I wish it was smooth, but as I learned the hard way, academic writing is, at least for me, is rarely a smooth process. So I think one of my biggest struggles at the beginning was really just simply getting through the texts. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, The Pledge is the longest novel, and reading those 12 volumes, this is not a translation, this is simply a rendition and typeface of the original Korean. It took me one year. I could never have done it without the help of Korean scholars who shared their notes, who shared their thoughts. And then my second challenge came actually when I started reading other novels in manuscript because other texts were not published by the time I was working with them. So actually learning to read vernacular Korean calligraphy was a project of its own. After that, uh, I had to find a framework to discuss these texts because, again, they are kind of uh, unusual upon the landscape of uh, Anglophone scholarship of pre-modern Korea. So yes, uh, the short answer is no, it was not a smooth process. It was very difficult, uh, but I'm glad it's over. Right. Well, it's uh, amazing in, in that case how smoothly the book reads and how all of this you know, weight of uh, real expertise and, and scholarship, you know, is, is carried pretty lightly, I would say, you know, uh, making for a very engaging and, and readable book overall. Um, but as we get into it, then um, perhaps I'll ask you some sort of general, I guess, questions about the, the topic itself. And, and maybe we'll start with, could you say a little, little bit more about what these lineage novels are, I guess it's a very open question, but uh, what is the actual kind of uh, nature of these, these, these works? Right. Uh, what lineage novels are, uh, certainly, as with any genre definition, remains open to debate. Uh, but I guess for me, I did try to come up with a few shorthands that would at least allow me uh, to pin down some of the prominent features of these texts. Um, so uh, these texts are basically very long sagas about the domestic life in Joseon, Korea. Um, these texts are extremely long, and I think this is important for a number of reasons, uh, because the length of these texts allow them to discuss the lives of several generations of one lineage, uh, and the length also allows these texts to focus upon the kind of minute interactions within the domestic space. So it's simply the length represents the attention span given to domestic everyday and also to the monumental multi-generational time of the lineage. And maybe perhaps if I could uh, put down uh, Two more things, actually. Uh, mm. So these texts are written in uh, vernacular Korean script. This is very important uh, because uh, this points to the emergence of elite vernacular Korean culture that is focused on female readers. Uh, and also, uh, lineage novels really come up with a new aesthetics of depicting personal life, uh, the so-called shift from epic to the biographical, where we are really looking at troubled protagonists. Uh, they're not really fitting into the uh, binary view of positive or negative version of subjectivity. Uh, we're actually looking at people who are going through very dramatic conflicts uh, and this very drama, the personal drama, dealing with unruly emotions is what constitutes the point of narrative interest for the lineage novels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, again, the way you tease that out, I think, for, for these kind of everyday complexities on the background of uh, a broader sweep of uh, long lineage stretching off into you know time immemorial is, is a, a you know really interesting interplay which we'll get into more um, but just one I guess point of clarification when you say then vernacular 
uh, Korean script. And, and actually, there are some great images in the in the book itself of uh, manuscripts and, and kind of very good illustrations there. But um, is the, is this basically what people usually call Hangul, or the 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 that in Korean is referred to as Hangul as opposed to Chinese character script, or is it more complicated than that? Um, it is um, a little bit more complicated than that, uh, right? So, um, as we know, Korean script was uh, in a, promulgated in the mid-15th century, uh, and Korean script uh, is a phonetic alphabet, uh, right, uh, that renders uh, basically the sounds of the Korean language. So when we look at the lineage novels, they are transcribed entirely in vernacular Korean script. However, uh, these texts actually include huge chunks of transliterated literary Chinese compounds. So actually, in order to read this text, uh, one, the reader from Joseon Dynasty Korea would have to be uh, familiar with literary Chinese idioms, expressions, and intertextual allusions. Uh, and it's actually interesting when I gave my students um, some of the uh, lineage novels that are translated uh, into modern Korean, they were like, there are way too many hanja, there are way too many Chinese characters. Uh, and so, in fact, this smooth surface uh, of kind of flowing vernacular Korean calligraphy in which these texts are transcribed really belies uh, the complexity of diction of these texts. Hmm, I see. So the kind of uh, movement to write these things in a more vernacular form, it didn't lead to the total exclusion of of these uh, literary Chinese Chinese forms, but was it a quite radical move, nevertheless, to have all of this writing in vernacular Korean script? Because on the background of, of a longer history of greater use of classical Chinese, was this uh, quite a sort of? I mean, revolution is maybe too much, but was it a big step? Uh, was it in these works only that this kind of move happened, or was this part of a general process of writing more works in vernacular script? Uh, I actually want to say that we see a kind of revolution in these texts. Uh, and the, the question remained contested uh, about how did writing fiction in vernacular Korean emerge? What was the first impulse? What were the first texts that were actually written in vernacular Korean? Would it be shorter fiction or would it actually be lineage novels? And actually based uh, on the extant uh, references to lineage novels, the earliest texts are, uh, we believe, started circulating in the late 17th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, so some scholars, including myself, actually believe uh, that the emergence of the lineage novel was quite a radical moment in grounding vernacular literary aesthetics that was actually centered on lineage, on feelings, and on the process of creating subjectivity within the structure of prescriptive kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this kind of change and this introduction of this more... Uh, or this greater use of vernacular scripts, it also pushes against, I guess, some maybe stereotypical ideas that people might have of, of Choson as this period of at least the, the latter half of the dynasty being more and more uh, sort of tightly controlled by a Confucian patriarchal order um, and actually a sort of, if anything, a rowing back of certain uh, freedoms within society that, that women might have had in an earlier period. Um, but this is kind of, you know, going against that on one hand, but it's also clear that the sort of society that is described is still one that is fundamentally anchored in this kind of patriarchal Confucian order. So could you say a bit more about the broader social context, you know, that sort of hovers over the everyday activity that these novels depict? 
Right. Uh, so certainly uh, when we read lineage novels, uh, even though their protagonists might appear strikingly different from what we're used to expect uh, from the lineage society of Korea, um, nevertheless, these texts and this aesthetics that they represent um, really is embedded uh, in the social practice of kinship. Uh, right. Uh, and uh, what was Korean kinship like? Uh, much has been written about its uh, institutional aspects, right? We have the flashing out of the patrilineality, uh, the clarification of the male line of descent, where the family uh, kind of uh, property and ritual privileges are passed to the first legitimate son, mm-hmm. right? In order to clarify this line of descent, men would have only one primary wife uh, who gives birth to status eligible issue and women in order to create this patrilineal society would then be moved into the households of their husbands right basically spending their lives within the domestic space uh, of uh, their husband's families uh, so this is basically the social milieu uh, that gives rise to the narratives like lineage novels mm. and you suggest even that actually the kind of lineage novels arise in parallel almost with this change in the social norms you know around around kinship practice right at, at this point in the history of this very very long Joseon period which nevertheless obviously had quite a sort of internal variation and and yeah perhaps greater conservatism uh, on the social level in its later days um this kind of mapping of uh, a literary change onto a bigger historical change and indeed uh, also you know economic and political shifts uh, is something that is you know carried out in many other geographies too many other linguistic settings cultural settings and you do provide a bit of an outline of comparisons that might be made to both uh, say uh, European developments or uh, or elsewhere in East Asia so could you contextualize this a bit more how do we understand this this shift at this point, late 17th century or so, in Korean literary culture uh, in relation to other geographies, in relation to other cultural spaces around the world? That is such a huge question, so I need to remember what I wrote uh, in my introduction. Right? So first is how do we understand the fact that the lineage novel is basically coeval with the, flesh, with the flashing out of the Korean patriarchy, roughly spanning the late 17th century and early 20th century. Uh, so this is really uh, the work, uh, the groundwork for kind of this question was laid out by my advisor, late Jaehyun Kim Habush, uh, who basically said, uh, you know, how do we understand the realignment of kinship life? There are many ways. Uh, And one of them is that it actually um, prompted the rearrangement of affective patterns. Uh, So my advisor, for example, uh, she would talk a lot about the change in women's station. Uh, this transition of women's life from their natal families to their in-law families that actually prompted uh, these women to kind of sever their ties with their natal families. Uh, And then, in fact, what was expected of a woman in Joseon Korea is that she would owe her allegiance to her parents-in-law rather than her own parents. And that is quite unnatural. This transferability of emotion became problematized in other vernacular Korean texts. Uh, And here in the lineage novels, I actually see other effective conflicts that arise at the problematic juncture between blood kinship and actually ritualized patrilineal kinship. And one of the conflicts I actually explore is uh, the difficult relationship between stepmother and stepchildren. 
right? Korea had a practice of adopting lineage heirs who would not be related to their parents by blood immediately, even though they would usually come from the kin group. This is not your child. How do you deal with that, right? The lineage novels, for example, depict that kind of a conflict. So how I understand lineage novels, it's basically the narrative, uh, the trying to work out the accompanying conflicts of feelings. Uh, I tried to place lineage novel uh, within a broader horizon of the 17th century, the so-called rise of the novel. Uh, my work itself is not really comparative, uh, so I can only gesture towards this horizon, which for me uh, is beautifully articulated by Ning Ma uh, in her work, The Rise of the Novel, East and West. Uh, and what she actually beautifully does in her study is she disenchants and historicizes some of the really loaded uh, um, keywords in the study of the European novel, uh, right? Uh, so what she's telling us actually is that we see global rise of silver, uh, global commercialization that goes through particular trade routes. And once you have commercialization of different societies, we see a process of unmooring of some of the rigid social structures, and we can see a concurrent shift towards the narrative of feelings, of subjectivities, of individuality, of personhood, what she terms the shift from epic to the biographical. In Korea, uh, we still need to wait for proper kind of history of commercialization. Uh, it, it's a very loaded kind of uh, area of study that I don't, don't want to speak uh, too much about. But the Korean society remained much less commercialized than its neighbors, China and Japan. However, what is interesting in Korean case is that we have the circulation of literature from China that Ning Ma herself connects explicitly to this uh, sort of shift of social life and narrative literary patterns, right? So I kind of connect the lineage novel and its own uh, zooming in to the private feelings uh, to certain influence of Chinese literature, but I place it more squarely within this process of patrilineal lineage making that invited all of this elaboration uh, about the uh, place of a person within the prescriptive kinship system. Mm, so it's something quite distinct from the emergence of a sort of self or an or an, a, a narrative self within, you know, uh, as you've said, uh, often over exposed or over analyzed European context, you know, this, this kind of European novel is often held up as a sort of paradigm as I guess, historically, so many European things have been via various imperial uh, logics and processes. Um, but you're really trying to situate this in a in a you know very distinctively Korean social context. Is that right? Uh, that is right. But I would like to say that uh, you know obviously this overdetermined, deep, introspected introspective European self, it has been kind of the ultimate, uh, you know, depiction of modernity, of selfhood, right? Uh, so what I am trying to do following the steps of scholars like Ningma uh, is to say that, yes, uh, Korean case is distinct but contiguous. There is nothing profound about deep European self. It's part of the global horizontal phenomenon, and it's for other kinds of reasons that this kind of selfhood has been privileged in scholarship. Mm. Great. Well, I think uh, we'll, you know, get on shortly to the sort of the nature of that self and what that self is uh, is expressing. Um, but one final point, I guess, on uh, the kind of broader field of of these works. Um, I mean, you admit that there are limits to how much we can know specifically about this. But how do we 
sort of how do we imagine these were written by whom and and read by whom i guess uh, that's a, a general question but yeah who were the authors and who were the the readers yeah, thank you Ed, for this question. So um, there's something interesting uh, about lineage novels, the distinction between their uh, kind of materiality, which is manuscripts, uh, and kind of uh, the novels uh, so far as we consider the question of authorship. So we don't know a single author of a lineage novel. It's actually common for Joseon dynasty fiction, especially in vernacular Korean, to not have clearly attributed authors. Um, this has to do with the fact that fiction wasn't really a privileged genre of writing. Uh, you couldn't really get literary fame by writing a novel. Uh, you would rather write other treatises in literary Chinese uh, that deal with other topics of morality, governance, uh, and other public values. Uh, lineage novels, however, clearly had elevated status within the Joseon dynasty society. These were texts that were considered to be objects of prestige in the families that were able to have them and produce them, right? So uh, uh, we might wonder why we don't know a single author of lineage novels. Uh, so my theory is, uh, and that's uh, I, I'm drawing inspiration from uh, the work of Korean scholars, that most likely these texts were authored communally within maybe families, right? These are very long texts. Uh, and we have actually some of the um, notes that describe that, you know, uh, several family members would transcribe lineage novels together. So perhaps they could also author them together. Uh, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm unable to move beyond uh, that uh, kind of communal hypothesis uh, simply because we just don't have enough other supporting evidence. And in terms of the manuscripts, what's really interesting is that uh, lineage novel manuscripts are not silent at all. Uh, they are actually sentimental mementos that often contain margin marks that would praise the calligraphy of kinswomen who took the effort and care to transmit these novels uh, for the future generations of readers within these families. I see. So, so the actual content, I mean, the, the being novels, being fictional works, the actual lineages described are themselves fictional, right? So there's, not, there's no possibility of any detective work looking at the... Uh, the nature of the actual the actual people described it's all uh being a novel that there's you can't say oh well this might have been written by members of this family because there are these characters in it or anything like that um there's way too much impropriety being described in lineage novels for it to really <laughs> be connected to a particular family i mean uh there are erotic scenes uh there are scenes of disease of pus breaking out kind of it, it's nasty details that you wouldn't want people to associate with your particular lineage group so they might have been written to be as different from the or at least the you know the kind of details of the actual lineage that feature as the background may have been scrambled deliberately to uh, make it ambiguous <laughs> what kind of connection it might have had to real people all resemblance to real characters is incidental or whatever they say in the, in in history in uh, fictional works and so on um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Um, anyway, that's great. Well, I think that's given us a really good overall picture of uh, the kind of context and and you know some of the some of the content but i think we'll move on now to the actual sort of main body chapters of the book uh, which is divided into uh, three separate parts the first looking at uh, figurations of choson kinship uh, the second looking at the effective coordinates of kinship and then finally a third part uh, entitled reconfiguration which looks at the sort of longer term fate of these novels i guess and uh, how their reception changed and and indeed uh, actually you know i think the structure of the book is one that's personally very interesting to me as, as someone interested in in time as both subject matter but also something that needs to be reflected in how you write about things and i think having a sort of historical chapter at the end or something that his, continues to historicize at the end, I think is a you know, very interesting uh, structural piece. Um, but back to the start uh, anyway. So moving on to, yes, to chapter one, uh, entitled The Structure of Kinship, Generational Narratives. Um, I thought I'd ask uh, basically about the relationship here between uh, domestic space and time and this higher kind of register or level uh, of, of the patriarchal order, the patriarchal and patrilineal context. Is this something that kind of hovers separately over the domestic space, which is a more mundane sphere? Uh, or is there a sort of more complicated relationship between things that are going on in the narrative of, of you know, domestic life and the broader sense of a, of a lineage you know, kind of existing separate from that. Could you say a bit more about that, please? Right, thank you. I keep thinking that I need to come up with a better way of answering this question. But uh, what's interesting about lineage novels is that they begin uh, with the narrative of the generations that precede the events. And they end with the narrative of the generations that actually born after the events of the novel reach their logical conclusion. Uh, so there is this monumental horizon of static prescriptive time that basically tells us that lineage has been there and it must continue no matter what. So there's this bigger multi-generational temporality that does indeed hover over the horizon of the described events. But this temporality also, um, in fact, informs um, the domestic temporality that we're looking at. Uh, so the main narrative interest of lineage novels is looking at the process of coming of age. Coming of age means you grow into the prescribed role of kinship that one is assigned basically at birth. You will be a mother, a wife, or a patriarch. Mm -hmm. uh, and these novels show us that this is a very difficult process, that you're not born a patriarch, you're not born a mother. You need to um, force yourself sometimes into these roles. Uh, so the domestic time is the time of conflict, the time of growing up, and the time of coming to terms with these roles. But we know that, you know, even though the protagonists do seem to possess a certain degree of uh, willful kind of um, desire to do what they want, we kind of know where they will end up. So mm. the teleological horizon really tells us in advance what is going to happen, but we are invited to witness the difficulties, the struggles of growing into the kinship roles. Right, right. Almost, yeah, like the uh, existence of free will, but within a framework of kind of preordained, I guess, outside outside power and a larger order. Um, yeah, and, and the interplay of those is uh, is something that you you chart uh, in a in a very interesting way uh, in the first chapter by looking both at um, uh, actually a slightly separate or related genre of uh, funerary works as well as uh, the lineage novels um, themselves. Um, but I'll move perhaps on to uh, chapter two as well, which obviously also. Um, zooms in on this kinship and uh, at least I, I believe uh, is maybe uh, 
contains some topics of specific interest to you around calligraphy and the kind of actual material production of some of these these works. Um, you've already said a little bit about how, you know, it may be that groups of kin uh, worked on these together, or authored them together, or transcribed them together at the very least. Um, but uh, I wonder if we could sort of try to understand a bit more about the use of vernacular Korean script uh, as, you know, as something that is formal, as something that is material about these things, uh, and how that intersects with the kind of gender dynamics that are described in the societies in the actual content of the novel. Um, you've already mentioned that female authorship was likely to have been a sort of trend uh, and something associated with these works. But could you say a bit more about the interplay of uh, male and female authorship, the kinds of literary spheres that creators of works like this and other works uh, inhabited in Choson Korea? Uh, right. So uh, I must say that female authorship, uh, I just um, want to retrace my steps. Uh, I wouldn't argue for all female authorship. When I talked about the kind of the mixed authorship, um, I would consider probably men and women of one household uh, doing the work together. Right? We know um, fiction was written by many men. Uh, so there's no reason to think that uh, the authorship of lineage novels would be uh, gender exclusive. Uh, in terms of the literary words, worlds uh, that readers and writers of these texts would have occupied, I mean, uh, we see that uh, lineage novels um, kind of, um, they obviously are inspired by um, late imperial Chinese fiction. Uh, they obviously make references uh, to the more normative genres of kinship writing, of which the funerary texts would be um, kind of the most prominent, right? What are fu funerary texts? Uh, they basically... Um, kind of uh, neatly packaged uh, the memory of the person uh, within the kind of uh, prescriptive moralistic pattern of recognizing what is a good way to lead a human life. My mother died. Uh, she did everything for the upbringing of her children. Uh, she was also very skilled in household administration and in the preparation of the ancestral worship ceremonies. Right, uh, And after we have packaged the life into this neat moralistic example, it becomes also um, a literary object that contributes to the prestige of the given lineage, uh, which is said to produce all of these wonderful and worthwhile individuals. Uh, so that's where the lineage novel stands in terms of its uh, kind of literary references. Uh, well, another uh, kind of significant element of the lineage novel is, of course, um, the allusion to historical events uh, from China, right? Because uh, actually histories, historical romances, they would have been uh, a worthwhile reading material for the elite Korean women because they would kind of uh, expand their erudition uh, and let them know about, you know, the kind of the broader uh, historical events of China that is something that everyone was supposed to know. Right, so this is the literary dimension, uh, and in terms of calligraphy, um, really the lineage novels were the starting point for my interest in calligraphy that is actually ongoing uh, beyond this first project. Um, I was first uh, really uh, I found the manuscripts of the lineage novels quite striking, um, especially because I didn't know that there was such a thing as vernacular Korean calligraphy. Because of course, when we look at East Asia, much has been written about the literary Chinese calligraphy and its place within um, the lives of the men of letters. This was the art form par excellence, and it was also a form of moral aesthetic cultivation for a person to achieve. What is, liter uh, what is then uh, vernacular Korean calligraphy? So when I first encountered the manuscripts, and I was actually going around uh, and asking scholars, what is Korean calligraphy? And they said, there is no such thing. 
And so on the one hand, I have this beautifully painstakingly transcribed manuscripts. And on the other hand, I know, I'm told that there's no such thing as Korean calligraphy. So how do we actually define it? So then I went into the funerary texts uh, to see in this moralistic register, uh, are there any references to writing? And would, if this reference, how can they help us unpack the meaning of brushwork cultivation for uh, elite women of Joseon dynasty? And I found an interesting notion there that um, writing is often uh, placed into the semantic continuum of other forms of corporeal discipline. Like they would say, uh, my mother was good at, you know, sewing and she wrote in a good hand. They would not call it calligraphy. It would, uh, the usual reference to women's handwriting is her letters looked like stringed pearls. So we don't have this expressive register of this fluent, large brush strokes that we can encounter in literary Chinese calligraphy. There's something orderly and something aestheticized. And I actually think that what we are looking at here is uh, the emergence of this elite women's culture in the 17th century. It's, it goes beyond calligraphy, right? Uh, for example, uh, many scholars are now working on the so-called cookbooks. Uh, the descriptions of cooking that actually incorporate uh, quite a bit of uh, knowledge uh, that extends uh, outside of this particular kitchen, right? So what I see here is actually the emergence of aestheticized women-centered culture that actually has its roots within the prescribed corporeal discipline that women were supposed to cultivate because uh, what do women do within the normative gender framework of Korea? They perform domestic work that is practical and that gives them a sense of self-worth. So calligraphy actually becomes also a form of bodily discipline that in the end brings cultural capital back to the lineage because women would, for example, also write letters to the closest social circle. And when these letters arrive and they are written in beautiful handwriting, uh, they would be admired. They would again be considered as tokens of the cultured status of the lineage. Uh, so uh, that's my understanding of calligraphy uh, uh, in which uh, the lineage novel manuscripts are transcribed. Mm. And it's fascinating that this process you describe of having a question about the actual physical form of the works you're analyzing and going looking for an answer in the works themselves, right? Actually looking, it's got sort of a recursive uh, quality to it, trying to find descriptions of the thing that you're looking at, but within the thing itself. I, I, I don't know, there's, there's something quite neat, I think, about that um, in terms of, you know, what was writing like at this time and therefore what is the document I have in my hand. Uh, maybe the document itself says what writing was. That's great. Um, and I think also you've mentioned there these kind of um, comparisons with China or, or connections to, to China, perhaps more uh, correctly put, with lots of the settings and, and some of the literary tropes drawn from, from China. But you also draw, I think, quite an important distinction between um, what you describe as the vernacularization of certain literary forms that was happening in China and uh, how that contrasts to use of vernacular written Korean. Um, you're able to sort of tease that out a bit more. Is this just a question in Korea of changing script? Is the language itself still quite high register and formal uh, in contrast to Chinese literature, which was maybe in certain circles undergoing a process of greater linguistic transformation or is, or is it something else what's what is that contrast uh right uh so we earlier talked about the fact that even though lineage novels are transcribed in vernacular korean script 
this isn't pure vernacular Korean script. Uh, it's actually full of uh, literary Chinese kind of uh, clusters, allusions, right? So we can't really disentangle uh, at some level vernacular versus literary Chinese uh, writing as it was practiced in Korea. However, I think it's a very important distinction that um, lineage novels are transcribed in vernacular Korean. So there is a different graphics and therefore different significance and different audience to this kind of writing. Uh, so I think uh, this graphic distinctness of vernacular Korean versus literary Chinese, and again, this hypothesis has been made by scholars before me, uh, this basically allowed women who were not supposed to learn based on the normative view of femininity at the time, this allowed these women to actually carve out a space of their own through readership, through manuscript making, in this uh, kind of uh, graphically distinct Korean script, which nevertheless was, of course, influenced by literary Chinese writing. Mm. And I guess part of what you do there is try try to, you know, um, well, blur the lines or at least uh, dismantle this positive distinction between, a, yeah, as I, as I think already, a male world of classical Chinese and a, and a female one of uh, these more sort of uh, vernacular pursuits. Actually, it's all sort of uh, tangled up together, both because, as you mentioned, men were likely involved in in the authorship of or, and, and the reproduction of some of these works, uh, which may be more associated with women and vice versa. Female authorship here did not exclude use of considerable erudition in, in classical Chinese forms. So um, I think that's a, yeah, a really interesting point when we consider this background of, again, stereotypically understood just on society as this very, you know, gender segregated sort of sphere. Um, but onto uh, the second part then of the book, which deals with uh, affect and, and feeling and the kind of, I guess, this this subject maybe a bit more uh, that we that we alluded to earlier, the, the narrative uh, person. Um, so, could you say something about the sort of place of emotion? You've already mentioned some of the sort of, I guess, potentially uh, scandalous, unruly kind of contents that can make its way in to these these stories that would make people maybe yeah, not want to have them associated with their own families. Um, but what is the, the place here of both emotion as appropriate and regulated within the formal kinship structure and these more, uh, I guess, um, spontaneous or uh, harder to regulate emotional sort of outbursts or, or, or feelings. Yeah, um, I think uh, this is really what makes the lineage novel so interesting. Um, when we compare it to, um, say, shorter fiction in Joseon Korea, we have very clear-cut figures of villains and heroes. So, for example, the evil stepmother, this is such a cliche, uh, kind of from uh, shorter fiction uh, in uh, Joseon Dynasty Korea. But when we look at the lineage novels, the stepmother, even if she is evil, uh, she actually is given chance to reform. Hmm. So it almost seems that unruly feelings become uh, a sort of a glitch. It's a moment in time that has to be overcome. And this moment in time doesn't necessarily signal that the person experiencing these feelings is evil or bad. It means that this person is living through a conflict produced by the demands of kinship obligation. Mm. So uh, this kind of complexity, the process of transformation, and also the fact that lineage novels, characters, they talk so much. That is what makes it so interesting to me. So when someone is going through trouble, if someone is doing something evil, 
they would talk about it profusely. They would explain to others, well, this is what happened. Uh, this is what I'm going through, and this is why I want to do what I'm doing. Uh, so this kind of interest uh, uh, in the origins, the process of unfolding, and then the kind of cooptations of unruly feelings into the ordered pattern of life, this is what is really uh, different about the lineage novel when we, com- when we place it within the field of uh, Joseon dynasty literature. Mm. And you kind of have uh, already mentioned in describing this sort of interplay between people negotiating their everyday existence uh, and their ultimate, I guess, graduation, if you like, into a prescribed position within the kinship uh, system. But, uh, I mean, is it the case that the sort of expansive f- stability of the overall structure is is what allows these kind of more... Uh, heartfelt vernacular uh, expressions of unruly emotion to exist you know is it that there's so much sort of firm stability there that you can you can you can express yourself more freely because you know that that kind of backstop is there does that make sense yeah, I absolutely think that's a great point because, um, you know, you must have some confidence that kinship will continue uh, even while uh, you focus on describing its problematic aspects. So I definitely think that uh, the kind of the creative license uh, in speaking about violence, violent feeling, uh, not non-conforming persons, uh, it really depends on the fact that kinship does become uh, so stable and entrenched in the life of Joseon Dynasty Korea. Hmm. And uh, also that leads me to another another question, which I guess actually uh, comes up, I think, potentially a little earlier in the book itself, but maybe is relevant here about who the protagonists and, and narrators or kind of primary figures in these works actually are, because um, you mentioned that it's, for example, not the, it's never the patriarch, it's never the actual sort of lineage head or someone who's too integrated into the into the system. Who, who does generally um, have their feelings expressed in these novels is it is it more women than men is it more subordinate members of a of a of a clan or lineage than uh, than superordinate or powerful members what's the sort of general picture of who uh, is most exposed i guess by some of these narratives uh, yeah, I think, uh, as you said, it's more subordinate uh, protagonists, but they're not exclusively female or male, right? So the two most prominently uh, problematic figures are the growing up patriarch before he actually assumes the patriarchal power and the woman, the wife. So mm-hmm. these are the people actually who seem to have go to who seem to be going uh, through kind of uh, lots of conflicting feelings. Mm. Do you have any examples of those drawn from the the kind of works? I should say, and again, this could have been something I mentioned at the start, but you kind of look at six different main works throughout the book. But are there any particular cases of, I don't know, like a patriarch growing up that that emerge from a specific uh, work? Uh, right. Uh, so let me um, let me take a moment to think about this. Um, I did focus um, my discussion on women because um, I felt that uh, women are kind of an underrepresented uh, object uh, in the study of the Joseon dynasty Korea. Uh, but um, we have, uh, for example, in the same work, the pledge that gives us the violent and beautiful Madame So, uh, we actually um, have her, um, I believe it's her nephew, um, who, I mean, basically we have a parallel unfolding of Madame So's trouble uh, and uh, in Guang's uh, trouble that he causes. Uh, and basically on his part, uh, we have uh, just generally 
kind of this what's interesting about the growing up patriarchs they always have really very bulent and passionate personality mm. so in fact the ability to feel feelings to be at odds uh, with the prescriptive structure that is actually almost like a badge of honor Mm-hmm. You don't want someone who is completely docile. Uh, you want someone uh, who actually has all of this mojo in them. Uh, so they usually go through, uh, you know, um, they usually have very difficult relationship with their fathers-in-law, for example. Mm. And that's not uh, a proper attitude for future patriarch to have. Uh, so it takes some time, some beating, some wise <laughs> words of warning from their own fathers uh, for these future patriarchs to settle into more kind of benevolent and balanced role. Uh, but uh, again, I find it super interesting that the patriarchs are supposed to be somehow unruly at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, that, that sort of um, yeah takes us back to this, uh, this, this interplay between uh, the structure and the kind of random randomness and uh, and yeah i guess it helps to explain a bit the question that you said you started with about madame sol and the the, the kind of uh, how is how are these things uh, allowed to exist within uh, this broader uh, broader system um i guess uh, as we kind of draw towards a close we'll move on to the very final part of the book and the, and the final chapter uh, which is entitled the novel without the lineage so uh, looking at this kind of i guess longer term uh, fate and and i guess some of the uh, historical contextualization of this uh, genre of work uh, in a more recent time frame as well so uh, how does this kind of uh, novel uh, or this form of a of a novel and its longer term existence including its place you know within korean literary studies today uh, shed new light on on choson society and late choson korean culture um, as well as i guess uh, contemporary attitudes towards towards that period um, in time and, and you know the last uh, of the sort of dynastic tire sort of spell of, of korean history Right. So that seems to be a question uh, about archival history in some way. Uh, and I find, uh, you know, lineage novels are fascinating in terms of content, but their archival history is equally uh, strange, I would say. Uh, so lineage novels become actually completely forgotten uh, in the early 20th century. Mm. Uh, and I actually spent considerable time trying to understand how is this possible because we're not looking at a group of isolated three, five texts that circulated during the Joseon dynasty. I must emphasize this is a massive tradition. We have dozens of titles. We have thousands of novels of mm-hmm. volumes, right? So basically we are looking at the massive vernacular tradition that just disappears. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? Uh, so uh, in my uh, final chapter, um, I do explain that somehow, you know, um, in the early 20th century, when Korea becomes uh, ushered into the global modern uh, by being colonized uh, by Japan, right, we have uh, obviously um, huge social changes and also a very kind of momentous shift in literature. What is it worth? Uh, what is worth writing about in the early 20th century? It's nation. It's emotion, it's a kind of a person with interiority who will make a good national subject. This has nothing to do with lineage. Uh, So uh, no one is uh, originally interested, of course, in this traditional Korean literature. And these genres basically die out together with their elite readers, right? So uh, lineage novel during the Joseon dynasty was a very elite uh, kind of tradition. It wasn't uh, for broad public 
broad public could not even read this text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically when the social system shifts, uh, you know, uh, very few people are interested in this elite genre. Uh, so for much of the uh, early 20th century, lineage novels are completely forgotten. No one knows what they are. And then there is a sudden discovery uh, that makes it into newspaper headlines in the 1960s. A research team is working on the grounds of the Changdok Palace and they find boxes of novels. Uh, and there are all sorts of interesting apocryphal stories that circulate and there's a belief that even via the novels in the boxes, well, that's because North Korean army uh, during the Korean War, they actually packed these novels in order to take them across the border, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's kind of, it becomes this fascinating cultural object that's newly discovered, but no one at, in the kind of second half of the 20th century, no one can even understand or believe that these super long texts would have been created in Korea and women would have been crucial to their circulation. So it actually takes another 30 years until 1990s uh, when scholars become fully interested in questions of gender, uh, in questions of cultural studies, uh, that actually uh, significant intellectual energy is even given to these texts. Uh, So I find that, uh, you know, um, this group of texts is kind of symptomatic of the certain cultural amnesia mm. that goes into the nation building projects, cultural nation building projects in South Korea uh, in the post-liberation period. Mm. No, that's great. That, that's amazing kind of nested uh, relationship between between text as as text and text as archive, uh, and then the broader sort of socio-political shifts that, uh, well, as we started out with both brought the text into existence in some ways, you know, emerging in concert with this shift to a particular uh, patrilineal patriarchal order, and also spelled the end of them uh, once society completely upended and there was no elite anymore, that the elite was a new colonial elite or a subsequent national elite and so on, the, the kind of disappearance of both a reading public and presumably also, you know, the kind of people who are characters in these novels right it no longer reflected any kind of society that anyone would recognize uh, but then also to zoom out another step and say well then what was it that you know uh, at least you know domestically uh, changed views of these novels and even awareness of these novels uh, it's a fascinating kind of net uh, onion layered uh, sort of um, analysis of, of the life and, and content of these things. So um, that's really, really interesting. And thank you so much, uh, Xenia, for talking to us uh, about them today. Uh, before we let you go, and we've taken up plenty of your time already, um, maybe I'll ask you uh, what you have moved on to since this project. Uh, you already hinted at it, I think, or uh, alluded to uh, moving on a bit. So could you say a bit more about what you're currently working on? Right. Uh, so uh, my next project is actually tracing the techno-aesthetic genealogy of the Korean script, uh, specifically focusing on the influence of uh, the so-called palace-style calligraphy upon the emergence of national calligraphy, uh, mass mobilization art in North Korea, or even uh, kind of the modern Korean fonts. And this is, again, an archival question. Uh, an archival question about women and women-centered practices that um, kind of exercise uh, important cultural influence, but they all, but that also become forgotten, right? So uh, to give just uh, one uh, example um, is that, for example, in North Korean mass mobilization art, uh, we have a lot of uh, calligraphy. Mm-hmm. And that calligraphy harks back to the 
form of writing that was developed in the Korean palace in the 17th century and that actually later on influenced elite women's uh, writing in vernacular Korean script, right? So we have the origin of this calligraphy in Joseon dynasty uh, in women-centered circles. And then this practice continues to influence mass mobilization art and some of the Korean fonts that are later developed. Uh, so I'm kind of trying to uh, trace this influence and ask, uh, why do we have this lasting graphic kind of uh, genealogy? But why do we know so little about women um, as kind of historical protagonists? at mm. each uh, point that I'm examining. Mm. Uh, so uh, kind of I'm continuing with calligraphy. It's a big project. It's an ongoing project that takes me way outside of Joseon dynasty. I'm still figuring it out, uh, but it kind of carries on my fascination with um, vernacular aesthetics. Fantastic. Um, and well, I can imagine that having all kinds of resonances with, uh, I think, other maybe only partially or to differing extents explored themes of the interplay of, of gender and, and script in, in East Asia in general, right? With hiragana and katakana in Japanese, with uh, the uh, sort of emergence and ongoing questions over this women's script, new shu in, uh, in China. Um, and uh, I think, you know, that, that sounds like a really promising and exciting project. So thank you very much. Um, but thanks a lot. Uh, yes, anyway, Ksenia Chajoba for talking to us today. Uh, it was great having the chance to speak to you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> Listeners, thank you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.